I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016. Coming up, part one of our graduation edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. graduation season is upon us, and the University of Colorado Boulder is holding its graduation ceremony this Saturday, May 7th at 8.30 in Folsom Stadium. So today's edition of How on Earth is the first of a two-part graduation special. Our guests in the studio today already graduated at least once, and will be graduating again, this time with a PhD. Yes, these are people who felt that after completing those undergraduate years in college, they wanted to have four, five, maybe six or more years in graduate school to learn more and to significantly greater depth in their fields. So we have three graduating PhDs with us to talk about their research work, their grad school experiences, and what they have planned next. So in the studio today, I have... Greg Salveson from the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences, Jesse Nussbaumer from the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences, and Odessa Gomez from Environmental Engineering Program. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Greg, we'll yeah. start with you. Tell us, what is your research work that you're planning to do? Uh, you have not defended yet, correct? I have not defended yet. Okay. That's correct. So... Tell us what you plan to talk about. Sure. Um, so spent my time in grad school focusing on what are called stellar mass black holes in our galaxy. And so what these are is when a massive star dies, usually something like more than eight times the mass of the sun, it leaves behind a black hole. Now, we think in any given galaxy there's something like 10 to 100 million of these, but by definition, a black hole cannot be seen, right? It doesn't... <laughs> it's black. That's black. And, <laughs> and so in order to see one of these guys, uh, you have to get a little lucky. You need to have another star uh, in a binary orbit with the black hole. And that other star has to be in a particular stage in its life where it's very puffy, uh, and the black hole is then able to rip the gas straight off the star uh, toward itself. Now, since this whole system, this black hole plus star, is rotating, uh, you know, binary orbit, that gas gets funneled onto the black hole in a disk, and we call that disk an accretion disk. And that disk gets super hot, something like 10 million degrees, and it glows in X-ray light. And we observe that X-ray light to infer things about the black hole. So you're not seeing the system itself, but you're seeing other radiation coming from it due to the interaction of these stars? So what we're seeing is literally the light from that disk, uh, the x-rays coming off of that disk. And is the work that you did, was it observational or was it 
theory of these types of systems? So I, I've done a combination of observations and theory. So we have X-ray telescopes in space. Um, so, you know, I'm an astronomer, but I've actually never been to a telescope. <laughs> um, people, a lot of people don't realize this, not all astronomers sit on mountaintops. That's right. <laughs> and so I use this uh, data, which is publicly available. Anybody in the world could go download it from the NASA website. And there are cookbooks, we call them, for reducing the data and analyzing that data. So I've used these space-borne X-ray telescopes as well as supercomputing facilities uh, here at, at University of Colorado Boulder. We have a nice supercomputer called Janus, which is soon to be upgraded uh, this summer. What brought you into this topic? What interested you about it? Um, well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> or you did know, you just fall into it? <laughs> well, well, in a way, I, I, I did fall into it. I, I had a very good undergraduate advisor, so I had started off thinking I would do engineering uh, as, as my undergrad, and sort of, we went to a very big public school, and astronomy kind of made a big school feel small for me. And The that, departments yeah. tend to be smaller than a lot of other departments. Yeah, I think... Gosh, there were maybe, I want to say, four of us in my graduating class, whereas mm. in my engineering class, there were hundreds. <laughs> so for your research about the black holes and the light coming off the disk, what's the connection to a bigger picture for this? Why would we be interested in that? Sure. Um, so, so Other than maybe gravity waves? <laughs> well, actually, um, but that, that's another. There, topic. there are many, right? There are actually really quite a lot of applications to, to studying this. So these disks around black holes inject a lot of energy into the universe, especially at early times, uh, and, and heat the the universe. We think uh, in in the ver very early stages, um, and just about you know, every single galaxy, we think, has what's called a supermassive black hole at its center. And these are something, these are just ridiculous, something like a million to a billion times the mass of the sun. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has one as well. It's called Sagittarius A-star. And we, the, these uh, black holes at the centers of galaxies, many of them have these disks of gas around them. And those disks can become very, very active and produce violent energetic phenomenon that we can observe all the way across the universe. And, and so this is really a universal thing, these, these disks around black holes. But by studying the ones in our galaxy, we hope to kind of scale up that process. We have these small black holes with these accretion disks around them, uh, and we hope that that helps us learn something about the bigger black holes with disks around them that are more difficult to study directly. Well, and when is your defense? June 30th. Right. You're invited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on next to uh, Jesse Nussbaumer. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you. What was your thesis research? So I, I'm mostly involved with something known as global climate modeling. And mostly the main focus is on global warming uh, or other climate change. And so whenever you hear someone say, like, oh, we think in the year 2100, for example, it'll be today two degrees warmer so the tool they use to actually get that number are these global climate models. And so particularly what I'm looking at is not the actual temperature. I'm looking at how the water cycle is represented in these models. Um, so my, my research is a little different in that I kind of have two chunks that are somewhat disparate. Um, but this one, uh, so one thing we did is um, obviously water itself, H2O, is in these models. But the other thing we did is we added um, water that then contain uh, isotopes of hydrogen or oxygen. And, you know, so an isotope is, uh, you normally think of hydrogen as just having one proton and an electron. 
some hydrogen atoms will then have a neutron attached to them as well. Um, and so these are called deuterium. And so what we did is we added deuterium into the water cycle. Um, we also added, so oxygen usually has an atomic mass of 16. Um, we also added ones that now have an atomic mass of 18. So they just have two extra neutrons. So were these added in as tracers or? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the scientific advantage is, um, so anytime you have a phase change, so you know, you're evaporating water or condensing water, the amount of these isotopes uh, relative to the regular water changes slightly, and that change is dependent on the temperature during the phase change, the relative humidity, all of these things. And the advantage of that is these are actually really hard to measure in clouds. I mean, you can fly a plane through it, but we can't fly planes through every cloud that uh, is around. Um, and some, like thunderstorms, you couldn't fly a plane through at all. So with this new, so basically what it acts is like sort of an extra constraint on our water cycle. So this gives us a way, I and mean, the exciting part too is there's now actually satellites that can measure deuterium in the atmosphere. Um, so this now, with these observations and this new model um, ability, uh, we can essentially determine how accurately our, the climate models are simulating the water cycle. So the work you did was to add these additional tracers into the models, and right. that gives yep. you an additional measurable or some constraint that you can then compare to see how the models are doing, for example? Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, so we, of course, measure regular water. You know, we measure how much it rains and measure how much water vapor, how much clouds there is. But the problem, and this is with any model, this isn't just a climate model issue, is you can sometimes get the right answer for the wrong reasons. And so what isotopes do is they allow you to make sure, are you getting the right precipitation amount for the right reason, or is something else about... Do you have basically two errors that are compensating for each other and then giving you the right answer for an unphysical reason? And and this is work that hadn't been done before. Are you the first to add these in or uh, is it building off other work? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's building off other work, definitely. Um, you didn't build the climate model. <laughs> no, no. Okay. No, yeah. So NCAR, which is here in Boulder, you know, there's a whole hundreds of people work on this one model. And then there's other research groups all across the world that have their own climate models. Uh and yeah, and actually, I'm not the first one to put water isotopes into climate models. Um, I'm just the one who's putting it into NCAR's latest version. Um, and you cross-compare the models? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a... Uh, probably the most famous intercomparison of models is actually something known as the IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They don't they don't directly intercompare them, but if you ever look at their results, they always show, here's what all the models are predicting. And essentially, that's sort of saying, you know gives you a measure of your uncertainty because you know you have one model that's fairly cold you have one model that's really hot and in between is everything else and that'll give you a range people have done the same thing for water isotope simulations so what do you expect your work then to lead to so i guess i can tie that into the sec the other part of my work um so one thing we've looked at are the things called atmospheric rivers if you, you know, you've probably seen weather maps and you have low pressures and you have cold fronts. So some areas of cold fronts, particularly in the west coast of the U.S., in front of them will contain a large amount of moisture that's being uh, transported, usually kind of northward and eastward. So the fact they're called atmospheric rivers is because if you measure the flux, the total water flux, it's equivalent to something like the Amazon. Uh, yeah, that's a major river. <laughs> so, so, um, and so the reason people are interested in it, uh, it's not so much for Colorado, but for places like California, um, these atmospheric rivers can come in, hit the Sierra Nevadas, um, and which produces a lot of rain and a lot of flooding. Uh, and so really the question is, how will these change due to climate change? And so that's sort of what my research has been looking at. 
And where the water isotopes come in is, again, with these satellites, you can kind of... So really one of the questions is, where does actually the water come from? Which sounds strange, but... Uh, well, I could imagine. I mean, I don't think of an Amazon flying overhead. Right, you know? yeah. I, I think it's a very good image there of how much water there is flowing. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, so the question is, I mean, we we kind of know that most of it's coming from the Pacific Ocean, or for the California example. However, where in the Pacific Ocean is kind of a big deal? Is it coming from the tropics, or is it coming from kind of like right offshore? Uh and so with these water isotopes, you can kind of, uh, there's ways you can measure kind of how long the water has been in the atmosphere, which would then give you a sense of, is, did it come from the tropics and go all the way, or did it just kind of evaporate really close? It's a timer. Right. Is that, yeah, yeah. So essentially that's what we're doing is now we, I have this isotope-enabled climate model. We can, it can simulate these atmospheric rivers. I mean, not perfectly, but it gives you a resemblance of them. And then uh, we can use the water isotopes and compare to satellites and then see where at least this model predicts the water is coming from. Excellent. Well, it's it's great that there are all these different techniques for improving and testing these global climate models. Uh, if you've just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm with three graduating graduate students from various departments at the University of Colorado. We've already met Greg Salveson and Jesse Nussbaumer. Uh, so my next guest is Odessa Gomez from the Environmental Engineering Program. Welcome to the show, Odessa. Thank you. So... Tell me what your thesis is about. <laughs> so in a nutshell, I was looking at the effects of anthropogenic or human-derived um, oxidative air pollutants, mainly ozone. So ground-level ozone is an issue um, mainly in urban environments in the summertime. And in a lot of cases, it's been focused on the health effects of ozone on folks' um, but we were interested in looking at what is that oxidative impact, that impact of that pollutant on microbes in the air. I don't know if many people know, but you can have up to a million microbes in a single cubic meter of okay, air. Okay, so now I'm picturing a river flowing overhead <laughs> filled with microbes. Right, right, <laughs> including bacteria, pollens, um, fungi, parts, pieces, whole, live, dead. Hmm. So we call those biological aerosols or bioaerosols. And those can include allergenic components and things that we would be concerned of for our health. And so the main focus of my research was to look at the effect that pollutants, air pollutants, generated from humans. I used ozone because it's common and it's a problem here in Denver, the Denver area, um, on allergens. And so I, I mainly focused on um, fungal spores that are widely seen in the environment, in soil, and in water-damaged homes. And were you looking particularly in Colorado or around well, the world? I actually made a environmental chamber to simulate what we might experience on a hot summer day in Denver over an eight-hour period. So I had to design, construct, and operate this chamber where I would aerosolize these fungal spores or mold spores, and then I would also introduce... Um, relevant levels of ozone at different humidities to kind of simulate what we would experience in different uh, in different environments around the U.S. And to look at the impacts on the allergenic components, as well as we found some interesting results in that ozone can modify the allergenic components. In fact, we, we saw a decrease in detectable allergen content per spore. And we also saw a decrease in the... Um, in an enzyme that's really important in the germination process for um, fungal spores. So that could have ecological implications that would definitely be a subject for further study. So are you arguing we increase the ozone? No, <laughs> no, no, no. But it is interesting to 
understand how these these impacts on what we are producing are important on our ecology and and um, you know nature and, and things that we encounter in that way. So I think in this note, it's it's it was detectable algae content that I that I had measured decreased, but it doesn't mean that necessarily the human body is going to see a decrease because other studies have shown, you know, with other pollutants present, it can actually potentially make it worse. So so you were looking particularly mm-hmm. at the ozone impact, but there are Correct. other factors exactly. that could mm-hmm. feed into the system. Right, right. Do you see this then leading into more work along that line? You've looked at the ozone components? Right. Yeah, you know, if someone else could take this and add in another component like NOx and other vehicle emissions and see how all of that works together. So we isolated one component just to understand what might be going on. But it, uh, I think the next steps would be to add in other other pollutants that would be relevant to these environments. What did this chamber look like that <laughs> you worked in? So it was... Uh, Could you walk in, if it's winter, can you walk in and have a nice sunny day? <laughs> sort of, I guess ideally, yeah. So it was a seven foot by seven foot by seven foot chamber. Um, bigger than most dorm rooms, so bigger. you're <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, and we designed it so that you could actually keep these four suspended for long enough to actually study extended periods of uh, flotation time that you would see with allergies. So instead of looking at a minute scales, we were able to look at hour scales, which are more relevant to the type of things we wanted to study. So what brought you into this topic? <laughs> Some of it was the opportunity in terms of, uh, you know, it is an interesting topic. Air pollution is interesting to me. I came from, uh, I have a chemical engineering background, so with a more focus on um, oil and gas um, refining and chemical production. So, you know, I'd done that for a while, and I, I was starting to become more interested in the environmental effects of what that does. And a lot of these byproducts include ozone or as a secondary product. Um, and so what do these pollutants that we're producing have on our, like, what impact are they having on our environment and our microbiology that, that it includes that? So. so what's next for you then as far as, are you going to continue on this research, or do you have another topic you already no, want to grab on to? I'm excited about the next range. I will be doing some chamber studies, but I'm going to be looking at the beneficial health impacts of airborne uh, bacteria on psychological resilience. So how I'm going to be using these basic idea of, of the chamber, but I'm going to be aerosolizing bacteria, beneficial ones that are just starting to be researched. Um, and we're going to be looking at the effects using um, animal models, so mice. Hmm. Um, and from there, we can look at um, inflammation um, and its impacts on stress, anxiety, and depression. You had mentioned your master's degree. Did you go mm-hmm. directly from getting your master's degree to going to grad school, or was there a time in between? I actually originally started in with my master's with the intent on getting my PhD in chemical engineering and had decided, you know, midway through, maybe I had wanted to explore some other options, and that included environmental context. Um, so I decided to end with my master's there and pursue a PhD in environmental engineering. Okay, so you yeah. didn't, say, take time off to work for a while in between? I actually I took some time to travel a little oh, bit. <laughs> good. You <laughs> yeah. took that gap year just a little bit later than usual, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, Greg and Jesse, did you two uh, go directly from through undergrad to grad school? Where Did either of you take a break? Uh, so I did not take a break. I went straight from undergrad to grad school. And I, I, I didn't even know, probably seriously until my junior year of undergrad, that one could actually kind of make a living doing science. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't meet 
many scientists, you know, because they're locked away in their offices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, really, I, I, I didn't appreciate that, that science was a viable career option uh, it, uh, until, you know, I sort of looked around me in my department uh, and had some great mentors who encouraged me to think about grad school. And, and what about you, Jesse? Uh, I'm actually pretty similar uh, to Greg in that I also went straight from undergrad to grad school. And the thing that helped me is I had a uh, so my undergrads in meteorology, and I think like most a lot of meteorologists, you kind of really into like severe weather and tornadoes and lightning or whatever. <laughs> and then chase uh, them around in your truck. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. So, uh, but I ended up uh, meeting an undergrad advisor who kind of directed me more towards this. Uh, climate-related research, and it just became really fascinating, and from there he was like, well, if you want to pursue this, you need to go to grad school, and then the rest is history. I guess one question is, how much of where you ended up was what you wanted to do versus a faculty member or someone who Hmm. said, try this, or I have money and I can pay you to do this? Hmm. Odessa, what was your experience? Yeah, I I think I had a little of both. Um, My advisor that I've, I'm getting my PhD with has been an amazing uh, mentor in terms of helping me find opportunities and, and funding um, to keep me going. So I was fortunate in that sense. Um, I, I firmly stand by good mentorship will help you get through because, yeah, without that, that advising and that mentorship, it's so easy to get lost in the system. <laughs> so finding, finding that person to work with, yeah. work for yeah. is... Everyone here is nodding. So, yeah, that seems like a very (laughs) valuable part. Is this what you expected grad school to be like? I mean, Greg, when you envisioned graduate school and, hey, I can make a living doing this. Sure. Uh, So so personally, actually, I I think I had a pretty good taste for what grad school might be like before entering grad school. Uh, I was very involved in research, uh, gosh, from my sophomore year all through the rest of my time in, in college, and I worked a lot with, with grad students and postdocs and professors as an undergrad. Um, so I, I came into grad school very much knowing what I wanted to do in the field of astronomy, uh, although at, at first I wasn't able to do that, but then got lucky and was able to secure some of my own funding um, to, to pursue what I was interested in. So that undergraduate research experience was an important part of figuring out. The, the graduate students weren't just these abstract TAs <laughs> who <laughs> graded your papers and you didn't know anything else yeah. about them. Yeah. yeah, no, you know, having, uh, there, there's this kind of academic hierarchy. <laughs> there's, no. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 you know, the undergrad, the lowly undergrad, and the <laughs> grad student, postdoc, and faculty member. And I think having you know, someone just one rung above the ladder that you're comfortable approaching rather than go bug the professor about some <laughs> some problem you're having, which may be kind of silly and, and you feel a little embarrassed to ask them about whatever it is that you're having trouble with. If, you know, somebody is just right in your office and that you can talk to, that that's very helpful, I think. Jesse, did you find a similar experience? <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, so my undergrad department was also quite small, and in the same experience, you know, we had a lot of, especially kind of north near the end towards my senior year, there were also grad students, like first, maybe they only be first or second year grad students, but they'd be in the same class and give you the opportunity to talk to somebody who, yeah, it's not, not nearly as intimidating as a professor. Like, you know, the professor's nice, just the fact that they're a professor can be a little <laughs> intimidating. So, like, so yeah, I think it definitely helps, though. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of intimidating, so I know Odessa and Jesse, you've defended already, right? That's right yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so, Odessa, any words of wisdom for Greg? What's a defense like? I think by that point you've worked so hard and you've prepared so much. You're you're ready, you know. I mean, you've got you've gotten it to that point, and I wouldn't say it's a formality. It's obviously it's a it's an exam. It's a defense. It's your final culmination of what you've been doing. But you are so prepared by that point. Your advisor says you're ready. You're ready. So. And what was it? What was it like? I mean, what's the setup? Do you give a kind of a big public talk, or yeah. is it a small group? Or? It is. Um, yeah. In your for, case, right? In my case, it's open to the public. An announcement goes out about a week, two weeks in advance. Um, you invite all your friends and family to come up and see it, and it's for me. It was about an hour presentation, and then after that, it's a closed door. Uh, examination with just your faculty. The grilling. Exactly. Yes. And then uh, and then they kick you out and decide whether you passed or not. <laughs> and you did? <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, your experience? Uh, well, yeah, my setup was really similar uh, to Odessa's and that, yeah, you know, open open door for, and you give a presentation to the public for about an hour and then, yeah, closed door, you get grilled and then tell you to leave and then you twiddle your thumbs nervously until they come out and tell you that you know (laughs) you passed hopefully so yeah (laughs) so so greg we're not making you nervous here i know but so yours is coming up but let's say you pass what do you have do you have a what's after grad school right so if i hypothetically pass um (laughs) then i can start the postdoc position i have um this upcoming fall in santa barbara california uh so i'll be working there mostly trying to determine what what the effects of strong magnetic fields are in these disks of gas around black holes. And Jesse, what are your post-grad plans? Uh, So yeah, I also have a postdoc. I'll actually be working at NASA in New York City. um, And I will be doing... I'll also be doing these water isotopes and climate models, but now NASA's climate model. And I'll be looking at thunderstorms and how they influence these. So maybe you will chase them. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And Odessa, what about you, your post-grad plans? I'm doing a postdoc, but I'm actually staying at CU. I'm working uh, in the integrative physiology department on looking at the beneficial health impacts of airborne bacteria. Well, excellent. Thank you all very much for being on our show. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. We have been talking with Greg Salveson, Jesse Nussbaumer, and Odessa Gomez, all of whom are graduating with their PhDs from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And they shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of a peek into the world of graduate school. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.